Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Jay Bujijewski. Jay is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, where he also teaches a few courses in religious studies at the School of Law. He's been married for almost five decades and a teacher for almost four and has several grown children and a clutch of grandchildren. Jay is a former atheist who once denied not only the reality of God, but also the reality of good and evil. And he's now a convert to Catholicism who worships and teaches adult confirmation classes in Austin, Texas. His personal website, The Underground Thomas, is at undergroundthomas.org. And that features a popular blog and a variety of resources. But he's here today to talk about his new book, How and How Not to Be Happy. So, Jay, welcome aboard. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Why do we need a book about happiness in 2022? Well, you know, everybody knows something about happiness. My suspicion is that everybody has some share in happiness. But on the other hand, we're often very confused about the little things that we do know. We don't put them together. We don't connect the dots. And so we go up blind alleys. There are the surveys. I take surveys with more than a grain of salt, more like five pounds of salt. But many people report not being happy. Whatever they think happiness is, they think that they've not got it. And the scores are actually lower right now than they have been in the history of polling. This is, uh, now there's a limit to how much we know from these numbers, because if you ask, you get a different answer if you say, are you happy? than if you ask, are you satisfied with your personal life. But, but still, there seems to be a lot of unhappiness out there. People are buying all kinds of life hacks and books and things. And I don't want to just join into that crowd of what I call the happiness studies crowd. But I think that there is some wisdom that's been collected over the last 24 centuries that can be brought to bear on this. And you talk in the book a little bit about not just surveys and asking jaded people like myself, <laughs> whether they're happy or not, or what they think happiness is, but you've often asked your students, what kinds of answers did you get from them? 
Well, I go through a, a sort of a drill with them that philosopher Aristotle went through. He works up to the fact that by asking them questions that they do want happiness and they want it as an end in itself, not as a means to something else. It would be silly to say, I want the cookies to be sweet so that there will be sugar in them. And it would be silly to say that we want happiness for the sake of something else. But then he says, what is happiness? And they give him all sorts of different answers. And he can cross-examine those answers like honor, pleasure, wealth, and so forth. Now, my students give a lot of those same answers. There are two curious things that happen. One is that a lot of things that they really believe they won't admit to me. For instance, they'll choose their majors exclusively on the basis of whether they're going to pull down the big bucks, but they will deny thinking that happiness lies in money. Or they will say, I want a position of responsibility. I want to manage others. I want to exercise leadership, but they will deny that they think that happiness uh, lies in any sort of power. On one occasion, I asked a group of freshmen what's happiness, and this shocked me. Rather than giving a positive element, rather than saying, oh, it lies in the admiration of others or something like that. They said to me, happiness is nothing but the absence of pain and suffering. And that really clued me into the fact that we've got a problem out there. Is it too much pain or suffering? And what's the source of that? I think part of it is this. There's something that philosophers call, sometimes call the hedonistic paradox. It's that pleasure is a good thing, but you get pleasure. You get pleasure in the course of pursuing other things that are really good. If you exercise friendship, you're going to have pleasure from that friendship. If you, if you learn something, you will gain pleasure from the knowledge. But when people pursue pleasure as a goal in itself, the paradox is that they don't have much. If you pursue friendship just for the sake of the pleasure of friendship, you're not going to have much pleasure and you're not going to have much friendship. Now, the hedonistic paradox used to kick in when people were maybe, I don't know, 35, 40, they'd pursued pleasure and then they finally discover that it, it can't fulfill its promises. I suspect that our society is so hedonistic that the hedonistic paradox, discovering that it can't keep its promises, is kicking in younger and, and people are burning out. And I think, that was, I think that was some of what I was hearing in that answer from some of my students that day. So I think that most people would probably agree that, yeah, you have an idea when you are a college student of what's going to make you happy. And once you get into the real world, so to speak, you have to start paying bills and you have to start providing for children that your goals change. What do you see between the difference of expectations in your college students, maybe people in their late 20s and 30s, and then people later in life. One thing that I've seen is that people later in life who have formed their families, they're raising their children, they find that immensely rewarding. They say, oh, even looking back on when I was awakened every couple of hours by my kids, when they were infants, I'm so glad that I could sacrifice for them. But people who haven't had children often look forward to that and think, oh, that's just a cost of life. That's just a burden of life. I want to have a good life to sleep. Do I really want to have children? I, I read at one website where a young woman was saying, I don't know the answer to this strange longing that many people have for children. Perhaps, she said, it's an evolutionary trick. It's like that with marriage too. Marriage is immensely rewarding, but people think that's a distraction from my goals. I can get what I want without that. And I, a lot of this is that people are afraid to grow up. I spoke to a fellow once when I was in an airport waiting room. I, we were both waiting to get onto the same plane. We struck up a conversation. The fellow said, I'm in my 40s. 
he hadn't caught on to these things I'm talking about that most people do eventually. He said, I'm in my 40s and I've got a kid in his teens. And I, I still don't really feel like a grown up. He said, I envy my son because he's having all this fun. I thought, how sad that this fellow has such a distorted idea. He thinks happiness is not having a good life. He thinks happiness is having a good time. And uh, that's really not going to, I'm having a pretty good time talking to you right now, but that's fleeting. And uh, happiness is something abiding. Happiness is something that sticks with you. It's the pattern of your life. So one of the things that you tackle in the book, well-known proverb that virtue is its own reward. What about that? If you're a virtuous person, the best an imperfect mortal can be, is that the path to happiness or do you need more than that? Yes and no. It's a path, but you do need more than that. First of all, I think the best advice that I could give somebody for the imperfect, vulnerable, and incomplete happiness that is available in this life, short of the vision of the face of God later on, is yes, practice the virtues. But practicing the virtues is going to help a lot. It's going to, for one thing, if you have some of those good things of life, it's going to show you what to do with them so that they don't end up being bad things for. Aristotle once remarked that perhaps good fortune, when it's in excess or you don't know what to do with it, should better be called bad fortune. And I think that's true. You need the virtues in order to know what to do even with good fortune. You also need the virtues in order to cope with hardship. So the virtues are crucial. But can we call a person happy? If he's, if, he's, if he's being tortured, if he's been exiled on an island and, and nobody else is anywhere within hundreds of yards, can we call, if all his friends have abandoned him, if he's, I doubt it, I doubt it. I don't think that we can say that this person is happy at this time. He may have sources of consolation. He may have ultimate and eternal happiness, but he's not happy right then. So virtue is not enough. You need the stuff that virtue has to work on. We need friends, for instance. We need to be able to, we need to be out of destitution and to be able to feed our children. Virtue alone will not give you that, but if, let me tell you, it's going to give you a much better shot and you're not going to have any happiness without virtue. I think a lot of people equate the word virtue with the word selflessness, which is where I think you were going with your answer, but virtue is also selfishness in the way of being good to yourself. Let's just say not drinking or using narcotics excessively or, or oh, sure. good diet, good exercise, blah, 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 blah. And I, I think even that is not enough to find happiness. You can be a healthy, wealthy, wise, and also a good neighbor for lack sure. of a better term. And still there's something more that's needed. Is that, would you agree with that? Yes, I would. At both of your points, there is something more that's needed. And I also agree that, that happiness isn't just selflessness. Now there's a sense in which I should be selfless. I have to be willing to die to myself. I have to be willing to sacrifice for my children, for instance, and for others. This is what love is. Love is sacrificial. But, but on the other hand, I should have a reasonable love for myself. I should take care of myself. The biblical adage is not love your neighbor instead of yourself. It's love your neighbor as you love yourself, the same way that you love yourself. The, your neighbor is, a, is made in the image of God, and you ought to live him like yourself who are made in the image of God. So I'm healthy, wealthy, wise, and treating other people relatively as I'd like them to treat me. And if I'm still unhappy, you talk about a number of myths about how to find happiness. What are one or two that you think for someone who hasn't read your book 
are important and can give them a clue into why they should read the book and find the rest? Okay. Let me answer that in two different ways. First of all, as to the, the imperfect happiness available in this life, and I'll talk about some of those myths, but also even if you have everything, even if you have everything that this life can offer and you've got good character and virtue, you are going to be saying, is this all there is? And one of the things that I discuss in the fact is that there's not something wrong with you for asking that. This longing has been built into us. The reason that we, that we can't find total satisfaction in anything in this life is because even the goods of this life are good because they reflect the creator of this life and we have to seek him. We're not going to see his face until if we are practice friendship with him until the next life. But back to the, this to this life, what are some of the ordinary myths? Well, I mean, we mentioned some of them already. People think that uh, happiness lies in wealth. Most people will deny it, but in fact, they believe this. It's one of the hardest things to shake people up. People think that happiness lies in having a lot of influence, having a lot of power. People think that happiness lies in attention. You think about it, some people carry this to a mad extreme, like the young pop star who had herself videoed riding a wrecking ball naked. And I can't read lips, but people who can read lips said that she was mouthing into the video the words, pay attention to me. Now, in every one of these myths, and this is one of the important themes of the book, in every one of these myths and snares and false roads, there is a grain of truth. If there weren't, we couldn't fall for them. The only way that you can be taken in by something that isn't true is because it has an, a grain of truth in it that you're exaggerating and misunderstanding and that tricks you at the end. For instance, okay, happiness is not in power, but I certainly do have to have the power to be able to protect my children, to take care of them without somebody, somebody interfering and telling me what to do. Happiness does not lie in material goods, but I certainly need to be able to get out of destitution and feed my family. No two people can ever be everything to each other, and yet we do need uh, friendship and we do need love. We're the, in my generation, the Beatles saying love is all there is that true. No, it isn't in earthly terms, but, but, but we need it. So there's a grain of truth in every one of these things. And a large part of the reason we talk about virtue is that virtue helps you to find that grain and work on it. Okay, this is how to acquire my material necessities. And this is where I ought to stop and say, I have enough. This is the right way to practice friendship. This is the wrong way. Of course, I want other people to notice me because I'm a social being and we, the good life isn't even good for us unless we can share it with others. But still just having everybody look at me all the time is not the meaning of happiness. Being able to, to see the grain out from all that chaff and to know what to do about it is a large part of the meaning of, the, of wisdom and virtue. And that's why that's one of the reasons why that's so important. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, 
It helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. What would you say to somebody who doesn't necessarily think, boy, if I had my own jet or my, my own yacht, I'd be happy then? I think there's a lot of people that can see through something like that. But and, and I even can relate to this personally. I have a child, I'm in middle age, that want to be wealthy so that they have security, so that they know my child will never go hungry, and that maybe at some point in life, I'll be secure that I'm not dependent on that next paycheck, and I have some freedom to do the things that I want that give me pleasure. Yeah. So I have this financial security to say, I like to go skiing. I like to read books. I like to run in the park, whatever it is. Are you on the right track to happiness there? Or does that one have pitfalls as well? I wouldn't say that it's wrong to want to have a little bit extra to cushion you. When I was a young man, I was out of work once for 18 months. And the problem wasn't that I couldn't do any jobs, but I was overqualified for what I could do and the economy tanked. I know what it's like to be wanting, to want to have something saved up, your back stopped. There's nothing wrong with that. That makes sense. There's a huge mistake though in putting our ultimate reliance in wealth. That's really treating it as a God. Well, you can only place your ultimate reliance in him. There's this very strange I, 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 I deliberately avoid talking about religious things in the first three quarters of the book because um, many of my readers are God-phobic or religion-phobic, and I want to say as much as I can to them that will make sense even before we discuss the ultimate and the eternal issues, but I will bring in something from, from, that, from that tradition. There's this enigmatic saying, blessed are the poor. Why would the poor be blessed? Blessedness means happiness. Why would they be poor? I don't think there's any happiness in destitution. But I think that there is a kind of a happiness in knowing that you can't place ultimate tr trust in wealth anymore. And that's a mistake that the poor are not going to make and that rich people make all the time. Do you know that in, among people who are extremely poor, suicide rates are rather, but the, and then they go down. But then among people who are very wealthy, the suicide rates go way, way up again, and they're extremely high in wealthy, high-status neighborhoods. There's, there's something going wrong here. We're not wrong to think we need some material goods. And it's other things. You mentioned take, taking a skiing trip with your family. What is wrong with recreation? I have the material good of a computer that I do my work with. My wife has a, has a, has a sewing machine and a serger and other instruments of the domestic arts that she, with which she's very skillful. All of those are material things. Is there something wrong with them? No. We're, we are not just angels floating around with no bodies. We are embodied beings, souls united with bodies, we do have material needs, but we're not just bodies. And these material things are not the beginning and the end of everything. I was going to ask you, because not only with the introduction and knowing that in the audience, there's likely some atheists and people of all kinds of different beliefs. If it's sure. necessary to believe in God, in your estimation or in the conclusion of your book, 
to attain happiness or whether there's a pathway for somebody who just is never going to believe in God to get there? I don't think that there is anybody who's never going to believe in God. When I was a, a young man, I passed a period of years when I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe that there was a real and objective difference between good and evil. I thought that was a social construction. We made it up. I didn't believe in free will. I didn't believe in personal responsibility. Now, I mean, I was in a jam. I loved my wife and children. Love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. But imagine how difficult my situation was because I didn't believe in the reality of good. I didn't believe in the reality of other persons. And I didn't believe that my commitments were in, my, in control. I'm not there. Somebody like me could could have a radical change of view and change of life about that. There isn't anybody who's never going to. And why should we close ourselves off like that and have such closed minds? Let's follow the evidence wherever it leads. Now, one of the thing, one of the places where I think the evidence leads is actually to, to this. Ar Aristotle was not a, he's an ancient pagan Greek philosopher. He made a very interesting point. He said, nature makes nothing in vain. Now, what does that mean? It means there's everything in us is for something. Look, I desire friends. There are such things as friends. That desire is directed toward a real possibility. That's why I have the desire. I desire food. It's because I need food and food exists too. So the desire directs me toward food. Even our longings, our desires are for something. Now there is a particular longing in us that even if you have all that other stuff, you have it all. There's a desire that is still not satisfied. You say, is this all there is? There's nothing in the created order that can satisfy it. There's nothing in nature that can satisfy it. It's in our nature, but it's a longing for something that nothing in nature can satisfy. It, the, unless the idea nature makes nothing in vain is wrong, and even somebody who believes in nothing but natural selection is going to say the desires are for something. Well, then, what this desire is pointing to must be, so to speak, out of this world. And I'm not talking about Mars. On one hand, it makes a lot of sense that if you were somebody who single-mindedly pursued what you thought was your happiness and you were successful and think Marilyn Monroe, okay, who was very unhappy, obviously, really? when she made it to where she wanted to be. And she wasn't by any means a nasty or mean person. She seemed to be somebody who wanted to be loved and mm -hmm. was good at what by she did. Things. And there's a, a number of people in entertainment you could just replace her name with. And it's almost that thing. And maybe a sports team is the same way where you can see real joy in them being on the way to the championship. But Two days after they raise the Stanley Cup or the Lombardi Trophy, there's got to be a letdown to say, okay, now what? And I think that's what you're getting at with what you just said. What about the argument like you've alluded to? That's just a naturally selected emotion that benefits the furtherance of the human race that, you know, it's just some chemicals knocking together that has produced yeah. a species yes. that will thrive rather than it's something spiritual that we're looking for beyond this life. Yes, it would be paradoxical, wouldn't it? I'm familiar in particular with a book by one famous sociobiologist who makes exactly this argument. He says, why do people believe in, in a book that he wrote for not just for specialists, but for a general audience? He says, he says, why do people believe in God? He thought that was ridiculous. He said, but why do people believe in God? He said, it must be that there's a God gene. Now, if there's a God gene, that means that it must have had an adaptive advantage. This gene must have somehow promoted the possibilities 
of reproduction so that the organism could pass the gene for believing in God into future generations. So what's the adaptive advantage? How does it help you? He said, it must help to unify the group. I can see two problems with that. Number one, groups are not always unified. So has the man never heard of religious wars? Number, yeah. number two, that's a pretty roundabout way for natural selection to have helped us all to reproduce instead of first making us designing a first first having us come out so that we we aren't going to reproduce very well unless we have some meaning and then we have a gene another gene that makes us believe in god and another gene that makes us think that believing in god gives us meaning so that then we'll have, we'll reproduce why not just have a gene to reproduce instead of going through all this rigmarole in order to get us to be united why not just have a gene to be united with the group it it doesn't really explain it it's hand waving. When there's that echo, that ache in, in the heart, sometimes when you look at the starry sky above, or when you contemplate the face of the beloved, there's the fragrance of eternity in that. Is it the sky that you want? No, you're looking at the sky, you're experiencing its beauty. Is it the beloved that you want? You certainly want the beloved, but you're wanting something else here too. It's stirring up something that the beloved can't satisfy as well as stirring up what she can satisfy it's stirring up it's stirring up something for for which there is no adaptive value in this life that we can point it it has to be for something else i think that's just logical i don't think there are matters of faith that we could talk about but i don't th i think that's just a matter of reason it makes sense to me that this desire that the explanations of this desire is having fulfilled some purely this worldly adaptive um, advantage in terms of the survival of the race don't really make sense. You touched on this and I want people to read the book. So I know you can't explain it fully, but the difference between imperfect happiness and perfect happiness, give us an intro into that idea and where you're yeah. going with that. At the end of part two, where I've gone through all of these candidates for happiness, does happiness lie in wealth? Does it lie in pleasure? Does it lie in meaning in a relativistic way, whatever meaning works for you? Does it lie in, uh, does it lie in love and friendship? Does it lie in power? Does it lie in this? Does it lie in that? Does it lie in annihilation? <laughs> Which uh, some actually say and show does, isn't the case. And then I, I say, okay, the happiness that's attainable in this life is fragmentary, incomplete, and vulnerable, but it's nothing to sneeze at. You want that? Okay. Practice the virtues won't make you happy by themselves, but they are going to, but you can't be happy without them. They're going to help you to live so that the good things in life are actually good for you, which is a different thing. And they're going to help you to bear up in misfortune. But do you want to attain the complete and perfect happiness that leaves nothing to be desired? When there's that ache in the heart, when we're howling, when there's that God-shaped hole in the heart that can be filled by nothing other than him, this complete and complete happiness lies nowhere else, I believe, but in the vision of the face of God. We have only glimpses and reflections of it in this life. Thanks for that. It's, they're wonderful. So by all means, do these other things that I mentioned, practice the virtues and try to cultivate the proper use of the good fortune you have, but seek God with all your heart. We can't lift ourselves up by him, to him by our own powers, and there's no pill that'll do it and no God helmet, even though some people, some scientists now claim that they can do this by stimulating the, uh, the uh, certain centers of the brain. We can't lift ourselves up to him by our own powers. That's the height of arrogance, but we can reasonably hope that uh, he will lift us up to himself if we ask him. And he has had something to say about this. 
Well, let me just say to the listeners, they shouldn't be intimidated because Jay's a professor with advanced degrees and a lot of experience. I can say firsthand that this book is written in a popular way, even though it may mention people like Aristotle and Machiavelli and other deep thinkers from the past. It's written in a very clear style, very easy to understand, but I think you've got to stop and take a breath for a minute and decide, I really want to explore this idea put my schedule aside for a minute and do a little thinking about what I'm trying to do in this life. Jay, where can people get the book and where can they see more of your writing? Okay, I'll answer that, but I just wanted to thank you for your comment right now. Yeah, I do really want to reach ordinary people. I, I haven't always been a college professor. For goodness sake, I used to work in the Tampa shipyards, but where can people get the book? Well, where do you get all your books? Wherever you get all your books, whether you prefer an online bookseller like Amazon or whether you go to another bookstore, they can order it for you. Any the All the places where you usually get your books, they either will have it or they can order it for you. How and How Not to Be Happy is the title, even if you can't remember how to spell my name. Well, we'll certainly link to it on the show notes page and to your website where people can find more of your writing. Jay, thanks so much for joining me today. It was very interesting. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it too. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.